Hey, everybody. This is Isaac. And today we have something a little bit different from our normal episode. We're actually going to share with you two episodes of one of our favorite podcasts. It's called History Daily. And they tell fascinating stories about what happened on this day in history every single weekday. That's right. Five episodes per week. They cover a broad mix of history from famous battles, fashion, medicine, science, tech, religion, sports, politics, whatever you are interested in. They find the overlooked and often forgotten human stories behind names and dates of ordinary history. Now, the episodes are bite-sized. They're under 20 minutes each, so you can start and finish one whenever you have a minute. Discover amazing facts you've never learned about history before. Even if you think you know a certain day's events well, you might be surprised. I know I was. Hope you enjoyed these two episodes of History Daily about America's founding fathers. Here's the first of the two episodes, The Battle of Princeton. It's 8 a.m. on December 26, 1776, in the city of Trenton, New Jersey. Inside the bedroom of a small house on King Street, a group of German soldiers, known as Hessians, wake up with stinging hangovers from the previous day's drinking. They've been celebrating Christmas with plenty of beer, and some of these men are determined that the festivities will continue into today. As the men rouse and then immediately pour glasses and toast to their health, they feel they've earned this brief Christmas reprieve after months of heavy fighting against the colonial forces. These 1,500 Hessians are soldiers for hire. They've been on the payroll of the British Empire ever since the American colonies declared their war of independence. In that time, the Hessians have earned a reputation for being fearsome warriors and have helped to decimate the Continental Army led by General George Washington. At the Battle of Long Island in Manhattan, the Hessians slaughtered colonial troops by the hundreds. They don't consider the dwindling American army to be much of a threat, nor do they expect to have to defend themselves this morning. But outside in the street comes a shout of alarm. Der Fiend! Der Fiend! The enemy! The enemy! Shooting starts, and the Hessians scramble out of bed and grab their bayonets. Some of them take the time to put on their bright blue uniforms, while others simply dash out of the house in their underwear. All along the main road, Hessians emerge from various homes in astonishment to find colonial soldiers on horseback streaming into the snow-covered streets of Trenton from two sides. Backed by the sound of thunderous cannons, the colonial soldiers are heavily armed, and they appear to outnumber the Hessians two to one. Until today, the Hessians were convinced that they were on the winning side of a bitter conflict between the British colonists and the American patriots. But starting at Trenton, and culminating in just over a week's time, George Washington will lead a series of victories that will prove the American Revolution is far from over. On January 3, 1777, at the Battle of Princeton, Washington and his army will perform an extraordinary military feat that will turn the tide of the war and alter the course of history. From Noiser and Airship, I'm Lindsey Graham, and this is History Daily. History is made every day. On this podcast, every day, we tell the true stories of the people and events that shaped our world. Today is January 3rd, 1777, the Battle of Princeton. It's December 26th, 1776, in the city of Trenton, New Jersey. 
just over a week before the Battle of Princeton. General George Washington, the commander-in-chief of the Continental Army of the Thirteen Colonies, observes the Battle of Trenton from the high ground at the north of the city. From here, he can direct his army of 2,400 men and witness the action from a good vantage point. He has a decent view of the two main streets at the center of Trenton, although they are now clouded with musket smoke. But the Hessians are easy to spot in their brightly colored uniforms. Among them, Washington recognizes the uniform of Colonel Johann Rahl, the commander of the Hessian Brigade. Rahl rides a horse through Trenton, trying to regain control of the city, but it's a lost cause. Washington's plan for this surprise attack was simple but effective. He divided his men into two flanking columns that would attack the city simultaneously under the cover of darkness, backed by cannon fire. The outnumbered Hessians are already buckling under the onslaught, and Washington feels proud that his plan is working and that his army is performing, especially considering what a poor state they were in just days before. Ever since the Continental Army's defeat in New York at the Battle of Long Island, an alarming number of his soldiers have deserted. Washington needs a big victory to boost morale and recruitment. He knows that if he cannot secure some key victories for the Continental Army very soon, morale will plummet even more, and this glorious revolution that he and so many others have devoted their lives to will be doomed to failure. To that end, his army has just performed a daring feat that will go down as one of the most significant moments in American history. Late yesterday evening, under the cover of darkness, Washington and his army managed to row themselves and their heavy artillery over the freezing Delaware River in order to carry out the surprise attack on Trenton. It was a hugely perilous and logistical challenge, especially considering that most of his men can't swim. At any point, thick packs of ice could have collided with their boats, pulling them into the icy depths. Washington considers it a miracle that it didn't happen. Instead, in the early hours of December 26th, he and his entire army successfully made it across the Delaware and began the grueling nine-mile march to Trenton. Washington had been privately concerned that putting his men through such an ordeal the night before a battle might break their spirits, but as he watches the vigor which with they attacked the Hessian garrison, he realizes he was right to believe in them. Washington watches as Colonel Rawl unsuccessfully attempts to rally his troops and establish a defensive perimeter. The Hessians have garnered a reputation for being formidable opponents, but today Washington's men prove the tougher combatants as they surge through the streets, shooting Hessians down on every corner. Washington feels little pity, considering what they did to his troops on Long Island. Just then, Washington hears a gunshot crack above the fray. He watches as Colonel Rawl, the Hessian commander, slumps over his horse and falls to the ground. With their commander dead, it doesn't take long for the remaining Hessians to throw down their weapons and surrender. Washington exhales in relief. With the battle over, Washington and his generals assessed their victory. It soon established that 22 Hessian soldiers were killed, including Colonel Rawl. 92 were wounded. 900 have been taken prisoner. The rest have fled the city. By contrast, Washington is informed that his army has only suffered two deaths this morning with only a handful of casualties. But Washington is not ready to celebrate just yet. However morale-boosting this victory at Trenton might be, Washington knows it's just the beginning of his campaign. The more pivotal battle will take place just north of here on January 3, 1777, in Princeton. There, General George Washington will lead his newly emboldened troops into a battle that will turn the tide of the war.
It's December 30th, 1776, four days before the Battle of Princeton, on the south side of Assunpink Creek, a small tributary that flows into the Delaware River, which divides New Jersey from Pennsylvania. General George Washington rides atop a large black steed and addresses his assembled troops of over 2,000 men. He knows the outcome of the appeal he is about to make is vital to the success of the American Revolution. He is also aware that he's already asked a great deal of these brave soldiers. But he has no choice but to persuade them all to keep fighting, even though as of tomorrow, most of them no longer have to. On December 31st, the enlistment of many of his soldiers will be up, meaning his men can legally leave the army and return home. To entice them to stay and fight, he's offered them a bounty of $10 per man, the equivalent of just over $300 today. But Washington knows this small amount of money alone will not compel them. He hopes to appeal to their sense of duty. He tells them, My brave fellows, you have done all I asked you to do, and more than could be reasonably expected. But your country is at stake, your wives, your houses, and all that you hold dear. If you will consent to stay only one month longer, you will render that service to the cause of liberty and to your country, which you probably can never do under any other circumstances. Upon completing his speech, Washington waits to see if anyone will step forward to show their allegiance. For some long seconds, it appears nobody will. Then one soldier volunteers, then another. Before long, all of the assembled troops have stepped forward to declare their loyalty to Washington and to the revolution. Washington nods in appreciation, knowing that with strong-hearted men like these, anything is possible, even defeating the British. It's January 2nd, 1777, on the north side of Assunpink Creek in Trenton, New Jersey. Lieutenant General Charles Cornwallis, commander of the British infantry, is frustrated. He marched here with thousands of red-coated soldiers to take back Trenton from the Americans. Cornwallis expected to easily overwhelm Washington's forces, which are only roughly half the size of his. But the Continental Army has not been so easy to defeat. As Cornwallis marched towards Trenton, Washington's troops employed delay tactics, repeatedly attacking Cornwallis and then retreating in an effort to buy time. Washington used that time to build a defensive line on the south side of Assunpink Creek. Washington and his men have formed ranks safely behind it. And now Cornwallis and his troops stand on the north side of the creek. In order to attack, Cornwallis's men must first make it across a small wooden bridge. Three times now, Cornwallis has ordered his men to cross that bridge, but each time his soldiers were repelled by American cannons. The bridge is now red with British blood, and night is falling. Cornwallis is irritated, but confident that Washington is pinned down with nowhere to run. So Cornwallis orders his men to make camp for the night, telling them, we've got the old fox now. We'll go over and bag him in the morning. Throughout the night, the British try their best to keep a watchful eye on the Continental Army. They can't see the enemy over the high trees, but they do see the flames of their fires flickering through the branches. And they hear the clang of their tools as the Americans prepare to set up permanent camp. At dawn the next day, Cornwallis orders his men to charge the bridge for a fourth time. He is delighted when they meet little resistance, but when Cornwallis gets to the other side, he is astonished to discover that the fox has slipped away. Instead of encountering Washington's full force, the British find the camp deserted. Soon Cornwallis learns the truth. General Washington knew he was outmanned. 
So he ordered a small number of his men to clang tools and burn fires high throughout the night to trick the British into believing they were making camp. At the same time, he marched the bulk of his army northeast to Princeton to launch another surprise attack. It's January 3, 1777, at dawn. On the road to Princeton, General Washington has stopped his advance to consult with one of his top advisors. Washington wants to take Princeton, Cornwallis' primary route of communications with British-occupied New York. Washington received intelligence reports that the west side of Princeton is heavily defended, but the east side is open. Washington hoped to reach Princeton before daybreak and attack the city from the east, but traveling at night took longer than expected. Now, as he confers with his fellow officers, Washington is frustrated because the sun is up and he's still two miles away. Without the cover of darkness on his side, Washington is forced to alter his plan. He orders most of his troops to continue on to Princeton, where he hopes to surprise the 1,200 British troops who are garrisoned there. But he also orders one of his officers, Brigadier General Hugh Mercer, to take a small detachment of 300 men west to destroy a bridge to slow Cornwallis' ability to pursue them. But with these orders, Washington has just sent General Mercer and his detachment right into the sights of the enemy. It's January 3, 1777, at Clark Farm, not far from Princeton. General Mercer and over 300 troops make their way through an orchard in the early morning light. Mercer and his detachment are on their way to destroy a nearby bridge, and they are in grave danger. 2,000 British troops have spotted them and are poised to attack. Last night, Lord Cornwallis ordered these soldiers to leave Princeton and march south to Trenton to help Cornwallis attack General Washington. On their way, these British soldiers spotted Mercer and his detachment on the march. Now, the British officer in charge orders an attack. The stillness of the morning is interrupted by a cacophony of gunfire. Eventually, the Redcoats charge with their bayonets in the air. But when they see General Mercer at the center of the ferocious fight, they are certain he must be George Washington. The British soldiers surround, taunt, and stab Mercer repeatedly until he falls to the ground mortally wounded. The British roar in triumph, but they have not killed the man they think they have. Instead, they will meet Washington later. When he receives news of Mercer's death, Washington is devastated. He sends a militia to aid what remains of Mercer's detachment. But seeing the state of Mercer's men, the militia begins to flee. Eventually, Washington rides into the fray himself with reinforcements and rallies the fleeing militia, leading a counterattack against the British troops that places him directly in the field of fire. One of Washington's officers pulls his hat over his eyes to avoid seeing his commander killed in the crossfire. The two armies fire incessantly, and soon the field is completely obscured in a cloud of smoke. When it clears, Washington is unscathed. He waves his men forward. The overwhelmed British are forced to break ranks and retreat from the city. Galloping after them, Washington cries out, It's a fine fox chase, my boys. Soon after this, Washington drives what's left of the British garrison out of Princeton. Washington achieves a well-publicized victory, one that renews confidence in America's ability to break free of British rule. And as a result, over the coming months, many new recruits will join the Patriot cause. Just two weeks earlier, the Continental Army had been on the verge of defeat, 
But now, thanks to the military prowess of George Washington and the resilience of his men, the American Revolution looks poised for success. But the War of Independence is far from over. There will be six more years of fighting before ultimate victory is achieved. But thanks to the stunning set of victories that culminated at Princeton on January 3, 1777, the eventual success of that revolution felt for a moment inevitable. Next on History Daily, January 4, 1853, after being kidnapped and sold into slavery in the American South, Solomon Northam regains his freedom. From Noiser and Airship, this is History Daily, hosted, edited, and executive produced by me, Lindsey Graham. Audio editing by Molly Bach. Music and sound design by Lindsey Graham. This episode is written and researched by James Benmore. Executive producers are Stephen Walters for Airship and Pascal Hughes for Noiser. Hope you enjoyed that first episode. Here's another one for you. James Monroe delivers the Treaty of Ghent. It's just before dawn on August 16, 1812, at Fort Detroit in the U.S. Michigan Territory. In his room in the officers' quarters, General William Hull reads dispatches by candlelight. He hasn't slept for days busy launching the first campaign in what will come to be known as the War of 1812. Tensions between the U.S. and Britain have been simmering ever since America defeated the British in the Revolutionary War of 1776. After earning its independence from Britain, America focused on establishing its new government. Britain focused on its decades-long conflict with France. But the open wounds of the Revolution never fully healed. And in recent years, the tension between America and Britain has given way to open conflict on the high seas as U.S. and British ships began to skirmish. The growing conflict has finally compelled President Madison to ask Congress for a declaration of war, which Congress delivered in June, the first time in the young country's history. Not long after, President Madison sent General William Hull and over 2,000 troops into Canada, a poorly defended British territory, expecting a swift victory. But the British, with the help of their Canadian and Native American allies, mounted a surprising defense. Hull and his men were forced to retreat and hunkered down at the fort on the banks of the Detroit River, the border between the U.S. and Canada. The British don't pursue Hull across the river. Instead, they stay on the Canadian side, but fire cannons onto the town of Detroit, forcing civilians there to flee. Now, as Hull sits in the officers' quarters, he wonders how long it will be before the British cross the river and attack the fort. Then, as dawn breaks, Hall hears the distant war cries of hundreds of Shawnee tribesmen advancing on the fort, backed by British and Canadian troops. British artillery sounds off from across the river, and before he has time to react, one of the shells crashes into the quarters not far from his room. As Hall steps out into the common area, he sees only dust and smoke. His ears ring with the sounds of officers screaming in pain. As the British fire on the fort relentlessly, the war cries get louder and closer. Hull knows his men likely outnumber the invading force outside, but he does not have the supplies or the ammunition to withstand a prolonged siege. So with little hesitation, Hull orders his men to raise the white flag. The incident, known as the Surrender of Detroit, all but puts an end to President Madison's Canadian campaign and puts America on its heels. After this embarrassing defeat at Fort Detroit, a veteran of the Revolutionary War and future president, 
Secretary of State James Monroe will turn the tide of the conflict, help bring an end to the war, and then finally deliver peace on February 17, 1815. From Noiser and Airship, I'm Lindsey Graham, and this is History Daily. History is made every day. On this podcast, every day, we tell the true stories of the people and events that shaped our world. Today is February 17th. James Monroe delivers the Treaty of Ghent. It's August 1812 in Washington, D.C., less than three years before the end of the war. Secretary of State James Monroe sits at his desk writing a letter to a friend in Congress. Monroe is frustrated by America's recent defeat at Fort Detroit and with General Hull, a man he calls weak, indecisive, and pusillanimous. But Monroe is frustrated by something else, his current job as Secretary of State. America is at war, and in Monroe's eyes, the real power in the president's cabinet is the War Department. Monroe has his sights on becoming president one day, and he knows that defeating the British as the Secretary of War would certainly help his electoral prospects. But as it stands now, he fears he may never get a chance at the office. America is a new republic and is ill-equipped to defeat the mighty British Empire. The young nation has no central bank and no reserves to pay for troops or supplies. Many of President Madison's political enemies oppose Mr. Madison's war, an expensive conflict they feel is unwinnable. But Secretary of State Monroe disagrees, and he's eager to get out from behind his desk and into the fight. Today, as Monroe puts pen to paper, he vents his wish that the president could dispose of me at this juncture in the military line. And not long after the surrender of Detroit, Monroe goes to Madison and asks for a military command so that he might recover ground lost by General Hull. But President Madison denies him, insisting that he needs Monroe in the cabinet. Monroe is left frustrated, but there's little he can do. Madison is the president, and Monroe his loyal servant. But then a few months later, Madison's Secretary of War resigns, and President Madison names James Monroe the interim secretary. But for Monroe to become the official war secretary, Monroe must first be confirmed by the United States Senate. Even though Madison's party, the Democratic-Republicans, hold the balance of power, many senators are sick and tired of the so-called Virginia dynasty, started by Thomas Jefferson in 1801 and carried forward through his successor, the current president and Virginia native, James Madison. In January of 1813, one Federalist politician gives voice to this frustration, saying it is a curious fact that for these 12 years past, the whole affairs of the country have been managed by two Virginians. Like Jefferson and Madison, Monroe, too, was also born in Virginia. And as a result of this Virginia fatigue, it soon becomes clear that the Senate will never confirm Monroe as war secretary. So instead, Madison puts forward another option, a Pennsylvania statesman named John Armstrong. Monroe watches with frustration as Armstrong is confirmed with little pushback. As a consolation, President Madison promises to make Monroe lieutenant general in command of the Northern Army. But the newly appointed war secretary, John Armstrong, has other plans in mind. Like Monroe, Armstrong has presidential ambitions. And in an attempt to deny Monroe any further glory, Armstrong convinces President Madison to leave his promise to Monroe unfulfilled. 
Monroe is stuck in the State Department, forced to watch John Armstrong lead the country in a time of war, and he fears down a path of ruin. It's August 9, 1814, on the Potomac River, just off the shores of Virginia, and the War of 1812 has been raging for over two years. An American diplomat named John Stuart Skinner stands on the deck of a British warship, lorded over by its commanding officer, the British Rear Admiral George Cockburn. The papers call him the Great Bandit, but American sailors call him by another name, Attila the Hun. As Admiral Cockburn hands Skinner a dispatch intended for Secretary Monroe, the British officer makes gentlemanly small talk and tries to be polite. Peace negotiations between the U.S. and Britain are currently underway in the Belgian city of Ghent, where ministers from both countries have convened to try to agree to terms. But Cockburn is skeptical of these peace talks and thinks they won't amount to much more than just talk. Cockburn asks Skinner if he's heard from the American ministers in Ghent about what they think about the prospects for peace. Skinner replies that there's been no recent news from the U.S. ministers there. Hearing this, Cockburn flashes a devilish grin, replying, I believe, Mr. Skinner, that Mr. Madison will have to put on his armor and fight it out. I see nothing else left. Cockburn was initially deployed into the Chesapeake Bay as part of a plan to draw U.S. troops away from the Canadian front to the north. But once there, Cockburn saw an even greater opportunity, a chance to put a swift end to the war by sacking the U.S. capital. It's August of 1814, and the British fleet has just sailed into Chesapeake Bay and landed thousands of troops on U.S. soil, less than 50 miles southeast of the capital, Washington, D.C. In response, Secretary of State James Monroe sends an urgent message to Secretary of War John Armstrong, urging Armstrong to remove all essential documents and personnel from the capital. But Armstrong rejects Monroe's recommendation. He doesn't believe the British will attack the capital, but rather the city of Baltimore, located 40 miles northeast of Washington, D.C. Monroe is dumbfounded by Armstrong's thinking. To attack Baltimore, the British would have to march right past Washington. But Monroe's many attempts to change Armstrong's mind are in vain. Instead of defending the capital, Armstrong redeploys the bulk of the capital's defenses to Fort Washington, a dozen miles to the south, with the rest of his men sent to Bladensburg, Maryland, 10 miles to the east. But Monroe isn't taking any chances. He quickly puts his family on a coach and sends them to safety in Loudoun County, many miles to the west. He then procures a small fleet of boats and loads them up with State Department documents, as well as his personal effects. Then he orders the captains to sail the boats north as far away from Washington as they can get. Lastly, Monroe takes up arms himself, rounds up a few dozen cavalrymen, and rides off into the night to gather intelligence on the enemy. He soon sends President Madison a dire message. 5,000 British troops are marching on Washington. Monroe urges the president to call up troops from Virginia to defend the capital. The president orders his Secretary of War, Armstrong, to comply with Monroe's recommendation, but Armstrong ignores the order. President Madison cannot tolerate the insubordination. He relieves Armstrong of his duty and names James Monroe first in command. Monroe gets right to work. He quickly orders more troops to Bladensburg to shore up the minuscule force of 250 men. But it's too late. In a humiliating defeat, the American forces are routed and flee to the capital where Monroe forces them back into formation. 
But Monroe knows this meager force is no match for the thousands of British troops marching on the capital. So he orders what's left of his men to Baltimore, fearing the capital is lost. He urges President Madison to evacuate Washington of all valuable documents and public records. But he himself stays in Washington until the last possible moment at around 8 o'clock that night when the British begin to enter the capital. Monroe flees the city on horseback, finding sanctuary at a nearby house where the president's wife, Dolly Madison, has also taken refuge. From there, James Monroe and Mrs. Madison watch the sky glow orange and red as Washington begins to burn. It's August 28, 1814, just a few days after the British marched into Washington and set fire to the U.S. Capitol. Not long after, a storm blew through, bringing heavy winds that sent flames in all directions. The resulting inferno forced the British to abandon the capital, but only for the moment. So today, President Madison takes the opportunity to walk the streets and survey the damage. By his side is James Monroe, Secretary of State. Madison has also just appointed Monroe his War Secretary pro tem, making him the only official in U.S. history to serve two cabinet posts at the same time. Soon, the two men are recognized by civilians who quickly surround the president and his war secretary. One of them, a local doctor, steps forward, begging the president to dispatch a delegation of citizens to speak with the British commander and offer up their surrender. Hearing this, James Monroe flies into a rage, saying if any deputation of citizens moves toward the enemy, it will be repelled by the bayonet. He implores the citizens to help him defend the capital or die doing it, and inspired the civilians rally to his side. Monroe repositions some 7,000 militiamen and places cannons at strategic defensive points around the city. He calls up militia from other states, lines the Potomac River with artillery, and sets up a system of gathering and transmitting information in and out of the city. Soon, Monroe's defense of Washington forces the British to abandon their hopes of taking back the capital. Victorious, Monroe pushes Congress to give him the resources to create a proper army. But Congress resists, so Monroe borrows millions of dollars on his own signature. He raises an army himself and uses it to beat back the British. Soon, the invading forces are forced to abandon Chesapeake Bay. But they then set their sights on New Orleans, a port city located at the mouth of the Mississippi River, critical for shipping, trade, and the transportation of troops and supplies. Monroe knows whoever controls New Orleans will control the Mississippi River and therefore the war. So in December of 1814, Monroe sends another future president to defend that city. In January 1815, James Monroe calls an emergency meeting of Congress at the Patent Office building, the only public structure the British did not burn. There, Monroe delivers the news. General Andrew Jackson has prevailed at the Battle of New Orleans. The room erupts with cheers as members from both political parties embrace in a rare moment of national unity. Monroe explains that the victory was total and absolute. Thousands of British troops were wounded, captured, or killed, including the British commander. Any British survivors fled to their ships in the harbor. As Monroe and the members of Congress celebrate, Many in the room wonder if this victory will finally bring an end to a long, costly war. But the war has already ended. Weeks ago, on Christmas Eve, the United States and British ministers in Ghent had already signed a peace treaty that will bring an end to the conflict. But it will take six weeks for the treaty to make its way across the Atlantic, 
before reaching the desk of the president to be signed. It's February 16, 1815 in Washington, D.C., and President Madison has just sent the Treaty of Ghent to the Senate for a vote. Weeks ago, the treaty was signed by representatives from both countries and quickly approved by the British Parliament. But Madison knows the war is not officially over until the treaty is ratified by the United States Senate and delivered to British authorities. But Madison is worried that one of the stipulations in the treaty might offend the Senate. Article 11 states that the Treaty of Ghent must be ratified as is, without any changes, meaning the senators will have to take it or leave it, and the terms of the treaty are far from the resounding victory many in the Senate are craving. The British will be required to return to the U.S. captured territories near Lake Superior in Michigan and in Maine, but the U.S. will also be required to return to the British lands it captured in Canada. The stipulations of the treaty make one thing clear. The war was a stalemate. Luckily for Madison, the recent victory at the Battle of New Orleans helps the senators swallow their pride. While the language of the treaty indicates a stalemate, the Americans know it was a true victory. And soon Madison is relieved to learn that the Senate approved the treaty unanimously. But there is still one final step in the process. Madison must deliver the signed, approved treaty to the British. It's only fitting and proper that he leaves the job to his top diplomat, the same man who helped turn the tide of the war. The next day, on February 17, 1815, James Monroe performs his final act of the War of 1812. He meets with the British minister in Washington and presents him with a signed treaty, bringing a ceremonial end to the war. For the British, the American War of 1812, as they called it, was a minor conflict compared to the great Napoleonic Wars being waged at the same time. But for America, it was significant and costly. Nearly 2,000 Americans were killed and 4,000 wounded. The war cost millions of dollars in materials, millions more in lost trade. After the war, the U.S. economy collapsed and the nation spiraled into bankruptcy. But the biggest victims of the war were the Native Americans, like the Shawnee tribe. After the war, the British largely abandoned their Native American allies, leaving them at the mercy of the American government. And in the coming years, the Native American tribes will be overwhelmed by waves of American settlers and government policies forcing Indian removal the bitter consequence of the nationalist pride many Americans feel after the victory in what they call the Second War of Independence. Secretary James Monroe will ride this wave of national fervor all the way to the White House, just as he hoped, and his landslide victory in the presidential election of 1816 ushers in what will come to be known as the Era of Good Feelings, a period of national unity in America that was already germinating when James Monroe delivered the signed Treaty of Ghent on February 17th, 1815. Next on History Daily, February 18, 1943, members of an anti-Nazi resistance movement called the White Rose are arrested by the Gestapo. From Noiser and Airship, this is History Daily, hosted, edited, and executive produced by me, Lindsey Graham. Audio editing by Molly Bach. Music and sound design by Lindsey Graham. This episode is written and researched by Stephen Walters. Executive producers are Stephen Walters for Airship and Pascal Hughes for Noiser. Thank you for listening to the full episode of Too Complicated for History. We hope you enjoyed the episode, and if you did, please leave us a review on Odyssey, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Be sure to follow us on our social platforms at 2C4H underscore podcast, or check out the link in the description. This will keep you in the loop for show updates, new episodes, and exclusive content. 